So we have talked a lot in the past about how we both feel like Star Trek Voyager perhaps does not have the best attention to detail in terms of world building in the Delta Quadrant. And I feel like Juggernaut is a prime opportunity to once again bring this topic up for discussion because... We haven't seen the Malon in a while, and outside of a mention, I think, in one of the episodes from the previous week, they, they've pretty much disappeared from the show. And they've disappeared from the show because in Dark Frontier, Voyager gained another 20,000 light years. But then suddenly the Malon are back in this episode, and they kind of hand wave it away as, oh, the Malon are looking for new places to dump their toxic waste. But 20,000 light years is a really, really far distance for that and it feels very half-assed in a way that doesn't necessarily matter to the episode but i'm a little pissed off by i mean they could really easily the first Malon episode involved a wormhole right like they could really easily you know and and here could be some dramatic irony gee after we encountered you the first time we found a different wormhole and it led here and you know, isn't that ironic that you didn't find the wormhole and you had to have a Borg encounter? Ha ha. And there, it's bullshit, but it's it's taken care of. It, 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 it addresses your concern, which I do agree with. I mean, uh, my very first note is, oh god, a Malon episode. Like, just as we, just, you know, just as I began to get really tired of Kazon episode and Herosian episodes and stuff, they just really don't know how to... I like the idea of, like, there is a version of the show that's a little more deliberate where every season maybe we we have a recurring uh, villain group, right? Okay, so season one, we have the Kazon. Season two, we're doing the Vidian. Season three, you know, and, and all of that. Again, that's kind of how Buffy handled its stuff, but you have it with an alien species, and you can have three to five episodes a season and maybe the finale dealing with that, and then we move on. They're obviously not interested in giving them a seven we're not interested in having seven seasons of the Malons, but i i wish they had been a bit more deliberate about characterization through that but yeah i i i don't feel like like it almost feels like this episode is saying gee i don't think anybody got that the Malons were a big pollution metaphor so we have to make that really really clear so everybody knows and that's where juggernaut comes from because it is i mean the metaphors the metaphor was clumsy as it is and here it's even even more blatant I mean, it is definitely a filler episode, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, you defend episodes that I sort of get angry by sometimes by saying, well, it's a filler episode. You know, like yeah. 26 and, of these things, they, they can't all be winners. And I think this is a fine filler episode. I, yeah. I think it's entertaining. It moves along pretty well. It's well written. There are no egregious plot holes or weird character development in it. It's just it's it's standard, yeah. right? It's there's nothing special about it. And. I I even would go so far as to defend the Malon stuff a little bit. I, I I do think that they at least were making an attempt at some some development of the Malon in terms of giving us a little bit more information about who who crews these ships and and what sort of like yeah. role they have in Malon society. And we get a little bit of a glimpse at, like, what their home world is like. You know, if, if you think back to the yeah. first, like, Malon or the first couple Malon appearances, they were pretty much just villainous for the sake of being villainous, which which works. That's a choice. 
But uh, yeah, it, w- if it you're res- going to bring them back a third time, you need to make them less villainous. That is that was the was oh, that was always the problem with the Kazon is that yeah. the Kazon were soap opera villains, and at least with the Malon, they're making an attempt to make them more than that. Yeah, no, no, no. They it does run the risk of being a Captain Planet villain. I'm gonna pollute because I love pollution, and polluting things is wonderful because I'm evil. I mean, that is kind of where the Malons start off, but in this episode, they do an amount to justify. Well, gee, we have a very technologically advanced, beautiful society, and we require a certain amount of you know, uh, the the power consumption does create waste and that needs does need to go somewhere and we this is these are our methods for doing this the safest and this is the way that we're trying to minimize the collateral damage and yes somebody needs to work the core uh systems and it's a horrible 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 job that has a very major mortality rate that is a necessary evil and here is how we mitigate for that and again it's it's Nothing that we or that Starfleet or the Federation might agree with, but they don't come off as as just, again, liking pollution for its own sake. They recognize it as a necessary evil. Um, the place where they fall short, and this was addressed in the initial uh, Malon episode, is that they haven't sought alternatives for that, and... Frankly, given the way that we are dealing with climate change and the way that it does seem like a we are not bothering to find alternate solutions for that because this works fine, I guess an amount of on the noseness to the metaphor is okay and frankly useful maybe even. Well, I mean, even take climate change out of the equation and talk about just pollution for a minute. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, we have, we have, the Trump administration is you know, actively looking to to roll back protections from from the EPA, and you know, if you if you look at at there was this interesting series of, of photographs published um, in the New York Times or somewhere a, a couple weeks ago, um, you know, showing uh, skyline views of of major American cities mm. in like the seventies and and how polluted they were and and how much better things have gotten because yeah. you can't do things like just blow metric tons of of soot into the air anymore you need to do things to make sure that doesn't happen and and you know the malon at least have a realization that theta radiation is really bad for their planet and so they're going to get rid of it you know i i i don't think that this episode is about the malon though and I'm not really sure what this episode is about, which is probably part of the reason why it's just a sort of like okay episode, because it's not really about much of anything. It is using the Malon as a recurring species. They had the makeup. They don't need to use it again. You know, they don't need to come up with with new makeup. And they're there because they're there. And it's a kind of interesting story, but but it's not really anything about the Malon necessarily. You know, I I, yeah. I think that they're they're their their use of this technology this theta radiation derived civilization that they have which necessitates them you know having this this sort of like horrific system for getting rid of it off planet and destroying the lives of people who are volunteering to do it um it's really incidental to the plot like it could have been about yeah. anything it could have been about a ship that just had a a warp core breach you know it, it wouldn't really yeah. have made much of a difference and- so 
Well, in as much that the, this is a vehicle for exploring the issue of Bolana's anger, which is frankly, again, in 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 the show's good use of subtle character moments, we are still dealing with. I don't remember the episode, but where she's doing all the risky hollow hollow uh, projector stuff. Um, this is kind of another wrinkle for that. She really isn't. Yeah. Yes, at the end of that episode, she began to get some therapy for her depression and all of that, and she isn't quite fixed. She may never be quite fixed, but she will always have anger flare-ups, and she will always get... uh, And if this had just been, you know, a ship through no fault of its own, you know, runs against a problem, and it's going to... Then that doesn't really hit Milana's anger. I mean, she needs to be... She has, I think, some legitimate reasons for thinking that the Malons have fucked things over for a lot of people. She has, in a way, in a way, this is a situation where she may even have the right to get a little angry at this because they are fucking things up for a lot of people. This is something that, as a Federation citizen, Bolana would get a little pissed off at, and everybody on the ship, frankly, finds this a little primitive and reprehensible and it, it's just that Bolana is in a position where she, she, she the worry is that she's going to let these feelings compromise the mission you know as they say several times throughout the episode it doesn't really matter we really just got to fix this we'll deal with the philosoph- philosophical aspects of this later right now we have a disaster that needs to be fixed i i mean i agree with you but i also think that they your your read on on Bolana's story in this episode, I, I I find a little ahistorical because I don't agree that her anger in this episode is coming out of her PTSD and grief over the loss of her Maki colleagues that we saw in um, Extreme Risk. You know, she was she was practicing self-harm in that episode. She wasn't really raging at people necessarily. And I, I think that the version of Bellana in this episode is much more close to the first season or second season version of Bellana, that sort of character that just had these snaps of rage at people. She didn't know how to modulate her feelings of anger. And you know, I think that this, again, is, you know, it is a criticism that is leveled at Voyager. I am not necessarily originating this criticism, but I do think that Voyager is a show that will go back to a particular character yeah. beat in service of a story, even if it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for where that character has gone. I mean, we saw that in 30 days, right? Like, all of the sudden, Tom Paris is back to his old ways. Yeah. Why? Well, because they had a script lying around that they wanted to do it for. Um, yeah. I mean, that's. I'm seems- not necessarily saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, we have always said that Voyager is the kind of show that, that privileges a good story over long term characterization. But there, there is a. I mean, I just I hate to keep repeating ourselves here, but but there is a lack of care and a lack of attention to detail at the heart of this show. I just fundamentally don't think that the writers care that much about this. And 
that's fine. That's a choice. I don't think it gets in the way of Voyager being a pretty good television show. And certainly we will have opinions about the entirety of Voyager in, in you know, a year's time when we get to, uh, or I guess six months time when we get to the end of the series. But it's still it still grates me because, you know, we're, yeah. we're at the end of the fifth season and Bellana is still acting like this and at, well, at a time when she hadn't been acting like this for, for years. It does seem like one of the weird hallmarks of the fifth season is that it's looking at certain things that happened in earlier seasons that may have been resolved in a way and it's saying, you know... I would have handled the issue of Valana's anger differently. So I'm going to kind of like it almost seems it's retconning itself in some ways. It, it, it's if I had written this up, epi- if I had had the opportunity to write a second episode, second season episode about Valana being angry, this is what it would have been. And so it's this weird. It's not so much ahistorical, but it's several versions of the character at once. Um, it's, it's, it's almost a continuous version of the character. Uh, which is, it's odd. It is an odd characterization. It is taking a... It is, because, I mean, like, Voyager is the type of show very much in the TNG model, and it's self-contained stories, but but in TNG, the characters did grow and change subtly over time, but but it did happen. And you never really got this sort of thing where you felt like you were watching a version of a character from five years ago. So... I don't know. I mean, I think that that Bellana's actions in Juggernaut make sense in as much as you can slot them into an understanding of the character. You know, she is not breaking out into show tunes or anything like that. I mean, that would be very weird. But um, I still find it a little bit like I don't know what they're doing. I think that's it's like fundamentally when you when you get to like the very core of my problem with voyager is that a lot of the times i just don't really get what they're doing yeah the a plot feels like it's a vehicle for this exploration of balana's anger which had been already explored analyzed resolved and evolved into a different form and so the A plot doesn't serve anything that's particularly useful and the thematic things don't really underpin this story because they've been – they're taking us back and in a way they may – yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, it's a weird sloppiness I guess to it. Yeah, well, I mean I don't even know if I would necessarily say it's sloppiness. I mean I think there's some elements to that of course but – it, it, I think it's more – it's just like they, they want to do what they want to do and they're not going to really be hampered by 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 continuity, yeah. I guess. I, I always think of this – I think I've used this example before on Trek About, but um, one, of the, one of the best examples of this that I think can ever be seen is uh, – so this season aired uh, contemporaneously with the last season of Deep Space Nine. Okay. And uh, Ronald D. Moore was bumming around at the end of Deep Space Nine, and he went over to the writing staff of Voyager, and he, he wrote um, on the writing staff uh, a pretty for a pretty brief time, actually. Um, and we can talk about that more when we get to, to, to next season. But one of the things that he always I, – I always remember this anecdote he had where he said um, he, he got into the writer's room or he got hired on Voyager, and he, he wanted a breakdown of the characters. He wanted a breakdown of like who they were, what they did, what they were yeah. like, what their personality was like. Like, and again, this is just his 
you know, yeah. his his uh, telling of this. So so we didn't see the other side of this. But, you know, essentially he was like, well, who's Balana? Tell me who Balana is. And they said, well, she's the engineer. And he's like, well, okay, that's her job. That's her function yeah. on the crew. But but what is she, who is she? What is she like? And they're like, well, she's the engineer. And so is 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 that yeah. a fair like I, I don't know if that's fair or not. I think that Voyager is a smarter show than that, honestly, but it is it is troubling sometimes when you get an episode like Juggernaut, which could have been in the second season of the show, doesn't really have anything to do with anything and is using an alien species that we left behind seemingly forever and they come back for almost no reason. I guess this is one of those episodes that the more we talk about it, the more I dislike it, but that's where we are. (laughs) I mean, I found it a boring episode. I will say that I didn't, it's yet another, I mean, Voyager is a very, is a much more formulaic show than I do like. And, this this episode is hewing so closely to what Voyager does. Oh, there's a space problem. Oh, there's a space alien. Oh, there's a creature. Like, everything just seems so rote, and... I mean, this wasn't an episode in which I had any sense of surprise or joy or whimsy or awe or whatever from it. Um, It was just kind of another Voyager episode. I mean, we, we... This is the point of Voyager that I was warned about by you and by a lot of other people that there will be a lot of moments of just this is Voyager this is right again I I I I find in general I I'm getting weary I am getting weary of the show I think and I mean I I I I will speak very glowingly about someone to watch over me in a few minutes because that episode was doing something different and interesting and it was not a strictly formula episode. I'm not saying that Voyager doesn't have great moments still. Um, what was the other episode? Uh, no, that was the Think Tank episode. Um, no, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. I, I think you know we're both excited to, to talk about Somewhere to Watch Over Me because it is a really good episode, so so we can we can move on to that. But... Um, two things that I do want to mention, though, at least a little bit before we move on to, to someone to watch over me. One is is there is this very strange literalness to this episode in that there is this monster that actually exists that is doing things for various reasons that are kind of ill-defined. And and I don't really have any sort of critical uh, uh, response to it. I just think it's something to mention because it's it, it it features fairly prominently in the episode, and as far as I can tell, it really has no point. It's just it, you know it, it it it's the life of a core worker is horrible, and look what they did to me. And, and I mean, to a degree, I guess they. I mean, last week was Rocky. Now we're at Rambo. So I mean, that that's basically what the what these episodes are half-assed versions of sliced alone movies. Like, <laughs> well, I, is I, this... I I I mean, I will defend it a little bit. I I I think the idea of a society that has somehow convinced its its 
I mean, the one guy's a sculptor, like he's like an artist, yeah. and I'm not saying that artists are better than than people that work in coal mines or worse than people no, that work in coal mines. But, but but it is interesting to me that the Malon society is portrayed as one in which someone that has a job or a role that they are fulfilling in society that is not terrible hard manual labor that's going to end your life prematurely can convince them to volunteer to do this sort of work but i mean Uh, this is not really different than volunteering for the army for example i mean that that's kind of but we don't get uh, a lot of sculptors volunteering to go into the army to do the kind of work that's going to end their lives no it is an extreme version of this but and we do we do have jobs that are this crappy and this dangerous uh working at no we do that's that's my point that that this is a society that has convinced its best and brightest to to go and do the grunt work which is i don't know because then is are what you're saying is that the right like like well but we're in a society which is told the lowest to do the grunt work like like in a way I don't know. There's a weird egalitarianism to Malon society in that way that, you know, this is a way to make a lot of money. This guy has figured out his way of navigating the art and commerce divide is that he, six months of the year, he sculpts and does whatever he wants. And six months of the year, he works at, he works on an oil rig. And yes, it's very dangerous work. Yes, it's, but it's also, this is the decision that he has made and the way that he's done this. I mean, this is, it, it is, it is another of the subtle Star Trek uh, damnings of capitalism, but. Yeah, because I, 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 I think that what I'm trying to say, and perhaps not, not saying as well as I, I could be or should be, is that, um, there are a lot of jobs in contemporary Western civilization, or I guess human civilization, not just Western civilization, yeah. that that people only do when they have no other options. I mean, literally no other options. Yeah. And and I think working on a Malon waste hauling freighter would be one of those jobs. So yeah, it's well paid, but it's still interesting to me that because like I'm not gonna go volunteer to work in a coal mine no do you know what i mean like i i I would have to exhaust a ton of other options before i would go work in a coal mine um and i guess that's what i'm getting at yeah i mean this is the this is the question of who cleans toilets in the federation that we come up against every so often i mean I feel Cleaning like toilets is one of the jobs that I would do before I went to work. Of course, of course, because it's just gross. It's not actively deadly, but um, I I almost feel like the other the the other. Obviously, it's not a, a binary between the Malon system and what I'm about to suggest, but it almost seems like arguing in you know. It almost seems like then there should be a caste system in which yes, you have the grunt class and they do that. Like that's that's even worse to me like that 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 does feel like something that okay because we have had we have had many civilizations in human society that have very specific castes and you are the coal mining caste and all of that and you you can't get out of that and you know certainly we in america like to believe that there we are a classless society and that you can move on and all of that but it 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 is the unfortunate thing that coal mines tend into specific areas because that's where it grows and things are not great in those 
places. I mean, in general, things are not great in coal mining towns. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I guess the last thing to mention before we move on to, to the next episode is uh, we finally get to see how a sonic shower works. Yeah, I... I, I Bellotta really likes her sonic shower. Like, I... I, I, I I thought it was kind of funny how she talks about it as a luxury equivalent to a bath. Like, oh, it's going to be great to get in that sonic shower at the end of the day. And because you always think of them as the replicator food version of a shower, but maybe it's kind of awesome. It might be. I don't know. I still don't understand how they work, but that is. Well, they use sound pulses to vibrate the dust, the dirt away. But I don't think that would work. How would that work? I mean, it looks like a shower. Her hair gets all nice. I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. Get it. It makes... You need you need water and like a like a like a friction action to like get the soap and not to get the soap. Get the like dirt. I know how, how, like how out of your hair and the oil off your skin. I mean, you can't. I don't know. See, the sonic part is what you know doesn't make sense to me about it. I could see almost like a another iteration of the replicator transporter technology because all right it 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 signals onto dirt and blood and dead skin cells and all of that and it teleports them away and then you're all clean because it's gotten rid of all the germs like that that's the kind of thing i can see it's oh well stupid i know like i i i I think this is one of those goofy Star Trek details. I mean, it definitely is. It makes no sense. It was meant. It was an idea that was thrown out as a throwaway line in a script in the '60s, and that for whatever reason, forty, thirty years later, we still have to deal with. But it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. I love it. It's all good. But it just doesn't make any sense. And I think we should lean into that because that is the way we keep each other honest. All right, let's talk about someone to watch over me. But before we do that, you know what's coming. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Show is where you can go to give us your financial support. We very much appreciate it. Once again, that place is Patreon.com slash Show. Now, in contrast with Juggernaut, someone to watch over me is a beautiful lyrical look yeah. at love and loss and 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 all kinds of crazy things that i don't know where this episode came from but it's very good it's it it, it is very much a low stakes hangout episode there is no uh, the, the the only vague stakes in this episode is this trade agreement which it's implied was never in danger to begin with and was very, you know fairly secure from the moment so it is just these personal – the personal stakes between the Doctor and Seven of Nine and this new stage in both of their developments. And I liked this episode so much because it really does give us – I mean the characters are what I like about Voyager. I do like these looks at these and the Doctor and Seven are two of the most interesting characters on this ship and they recognize and lean into it. 
Yeah, I mean, someone to watch over me is is really Star Trek Voyager. I think at its best, firing on all cylinders. You know, this is yeah. this is a series that, or this is an episode that remembers its past, remembers you know its characters exist. I mean, each character gets a little bit of a moment to to have a, a little bit of a moment, um, except for maybe Chakotay, poor Chakotay. Uh, and what's more interesting about it than that is that there's no there's no real attempt to make a justification for why this is happening. You know what I mean? Like so many times in star Trek, they have to come up with some sort of science fiction plot. And yes, there's this trade negotiation. Um, But But aside from that, it's just like you said, it's a hangout episode. It remembers that we like these characters and we want them. We want, we want to see them do things. And it also recognizes that the Doctor and Seven of Nine have both been on the ship for, you know, a, a pretty, well, been alive, really, for, for a fairly short amount of time and and would be getting to different places in their development. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, it's, I mean, it's the kind of episode that, in retrospect, is extraordinarily obvious. I mean, I think I've mentioned a couple times that, uh Seven of Nine getting into having you know, romance and dating and stuff is something that she is going to deal with because she has been going through kind of all of the stages of life, of adolescence, of becoming her own person, and a romantic side is another facet of humanity that she is eventually going to get to, and it makes complete sense that, yes, the Doctor and Seven could be involved in a possible romance plot because... They do have a lot of co- in common. They do have an excellent rapport. They do see the world similarly. They do have a similar relationship to everybody else. So, yeah, it makes sense that they would explore that possibility. And it makes sense that neither of them would be a would be good enough at it to make it actually happen because I mean, we do see I, there is something a little high school romance about this that's very sad and poignant because they're fucking it up because they're just not experienced enough to do this the honest open adult way yeah because i mean i I, I, well it's it's i I think for the i mean for the doctor at least there there's a bit of that but I, i think for seven it's it's a little bit different because I don't know that there's much indication in the episode that she actually has feelings for the doctor. I mean, this that part of it, at least it, to me, seems one-sided. And I'm not not to say that that she couldn't develop feelings for the doctor, or that maybe she's not aware that she has feelings for the doctor. But I I think to me it comes off as that because at one point she does say like, "Well, you know, we're colleagues." Like in a way, they're, they're we're in kind of a friend zone situation, but. That's a way of thinking that actually does make a lot of sense for Seven of Nine. She comes to her conclusion, she analyzes all the data, and she 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 has her answer. And particularly when she first met the Doctor, yes, he slots into the colleague mentor slot. And this episode is him, at the end of the episode, is her kind of retiring him as a mentor. And at no, I don't think she really gets the makes the leap to 
reconsider the the categorization of him. And now, which is not to say that she might ultimately look at this and say, you know, no, we're not meant to be together. There There is no romance here, but... It just doesn't seem like she actually gives the matter any, enough consideration here and doesn't recognize that she – this might have been a moment because, frankly, the doctor never opens his mouth enough. Yeah, I mean I, I think that, that it is a little bit – I mean the doctor has already had romantic relationships as he says in this episode. Um, you know, I, one, of the, one of the particular delights of this episode is the, the ways in which Tom Paris and the doctor interact. But he he has had some experience in this before, so so he has at least yeah. some idea about what it it feels like to have feelings for someone. Uh, and I don't know that it's necessarily fair to expect Seven to no. realize what it feels like to have feelings for someone else, because that is something that you have to develop over time, and you have to learn that. I mean, yes, we're, we're not all. We, we don't all know how we feel. A lot of people, you know, they're 50 years old and they don't know how they feel. Um, there's a reason why there's so many therapists in the world. But I I still kind of, the one thing that I struggled with with this episode, and I, I, I think we're kind of dancing around it, is this this sort of like idea of personhood and this idea of agency. Mm. And and the idea that that so much of this episode is told from the point of view of of the doctor and from everyone else around seven of nine, as opposed to seven of nine. I don't know that this episode is very revelatory about sevens feelings about any of what's going on. And, and I, I I don't know that that's a problem because that's part of the, that's part of the character of seven of nine. That's kind of baked into it that, that everyone else is kind of telling her what she should be like. I mean, Janeway did that. The doctor is doing that. I mean, a lot of people do that. Yeah. But but I, I, I think that this episode in a lot of ways is a crossroads episode because this is the final time that I think that they can get away with treating Seven of Nine like this. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not no. saying it's bad. I think it makes sense because in a lot of ways, Seven is 12 years old. But yeah, no, it it. it, it well i i think it does make a lot of sense that she comes to no conclusions for this this is kind of the beginnings of her realizing that this is something that she's interested in these are in a way these circuits turning on for her and so she's i mean i, I she's doing it in this very like this almost seems like that weird i've had a lot of friends who you know were very smart when they were girls who have said like when they were like 13 14 and started becoming interested in sex they do this as like a big research project and you know you you approach it very scientifically and in a way when you get older you realize how weird and creepy you're doing this but you're 13 it's okay yeah it's weird and creepy that she is following the one couple that she knows and getting as much data as she can but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, she she seven of nine is a person who wants all the data on something and wants to learn everything she can. And this is one area. The area of romance is an area where you can't research and get all of the. You do need a bit of practical experience. And so, yes, she is not quite ready to have a relationship yet. Maybe she is not quite cognizant of this. But it is also the time when she's recognizing that. 
yes, this is something I'm interested in because seven of nine of a year ago would have said, no, ew, cooties, why would I ever want to copulate? Why would we do that? And Well, I, I mean, that, it's funny you say that because, it, you know, the, the one thing that I think is, is very interesting about, about this episode in particular is, and about the character of seven of nine is that, I mean, she is very sexually free, but maybe not romantically so i i i mean well going back to her first appearances where she sort of was like oh ensign kim you want to fuck all right sure um i don't think she really i mean not to say she doesn't care about that part of it but i think that she doesn't view sexes and romance as inextricably linked in the same way that um a lot of other star trek characters perhaps do and She's almost from like a, a, a previous version of the franchise, which was a lot more sexually free, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, um, but then the but the question for me is, yes, she may say, oh, Harry Kim wants to copulate. Yes, let's leave this for science. But at that particular point, do you think it quite – like I don't know if she quite understood the full import of all of that. She certainly didn't recognize the – I mean for her – copulation is an is just a completely biological act i mean look at the way it's it, look at the wording i mean it's almost like something two insects do so of course yes i'm interested in this as scientific curiosity without recognizing a tenth of what it would mean to harry kim or anybody else on the ship um i mean i i, I frankly frankly i think it's funny that harry kim is the one who recommends this guy who it turns out that everybody knows that he's really nervous around women like i think i i i I love how fucking naive harry kim is like i think finally seven and harry kim might almost be on the same page she has finally ascended to his level which is very sad but you know we we (laughs) go on well no i i i mean i i somewhat agree with you i i I do think that i mean it sounds yeah well, Seven of Nine has friends amongst the crew now yes. at this point. And, and, and while I, I don't think that they're going to the movies or, or, or doing a lot of other stuff, we have seen her uh, playing games with people. She's got a relationship with Naomi Wildman. Yeah. Um, you know, she she has various interpersonal relationships that have nothing to do with romance. And so this is kind of the, the next step in that regard. And... That is, I mean, it, I think it's smart for the episode to to set up this as as explicitly an experiment, as explicitly school for her. Like, you know, why is the doctor doing this? Well, he's interested in her development, but secretly he has feelings for her that he doesn't realize until you know. And and part of that could be construed as very creepy. Of course, some some of that could be construed as he was like grooming her or something. Well, but, that's you know that's the pig. Well, but the episode uh, plays it very yeah. well. I mean, that that's part of what it, it it does very well is that it takes a concept that could seem creepy and, and makes it not creepy because we like the doctor. We like seven. We yeah. know that the doctor doesn't have any ulterior motives here. We know that he likes seven. We know that he cares about her and that he wants to, to, you know, he wants the best for her. And so when he realizes at the end of the episode that perhaps he does have feelings for her that he would like to explore, you know, it is, I mean, I, I, we've been talking a lot about seven, but I also think that it's a sign of the doctor's emotional maturation that he doesn't have that conversation with seven because he is, he, he understands the import of it and he is afraid of it i mean he's not to the next level which is yeah 
if you have to have a conversation with someone, you should just do it and ha- do it in a respectful way. But yeah. be okay with either answer. Be okay with, well, I'm not into that, or be okay with, yes, please take me now. Um, yeah, he's not one there thing t- yet. Yeah, he can simply say, listen, I had a great time. I would be interested in going on another date with you. I, I feel we get along very well if you would like to explore this avenue of a relationship and then it's up to her to decide, you know, yeah, why not? Or no, I, I, I would rather keep this as that. And you know, again, it doesn't see he takes this this gift at the end as a goodbye and she almost thinks as it as well, dating didn't work out and again, it seems like an oversight on her part that she didn't, but she when she says, Oh, there's no there's no eligible bachelors on this ship. She she isn't even thinking of him. And I wonder if there is a very subtle – like he has that conversation with uh, Tom Paris about, oh, a real date, which I think Tom Paris means like a, you're, you made a bet, at, bet that she would get a date and you're the date. That's a little cheating. That doesn't count as somebody that she found on her own, but – the doctor takes it to mean as you're not flesh and blood, you're light and hologram right. productions. And I wonder if that factors into Seven of Nine's feelings subconsciously as well. Probably, yeah. But I also think that, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I do think that there is an element of, you know, Seven of Nine for, for someone who is portrayed as as very willful also is very susceptible to suggestion sometimes as well. And yeah. I think that's part of it. Certainly that, that she sees how everyone around her treats the doctor and doesn't necessarily want to think outside of that box or isn't challenging herself to do so. Well, it makes sense same- considering her background as somebody who yeah. literally yeah. did deal with the will of the group and did, and, Frankly, she know even beyond that, she is on the ship to learn human behavior, right? That is a very explicit thing that she – one of her goals on here. And so everyone around the doctor treating him in this subtle way is human behavior. She, The fact that she is picking up on what the group is doing is in a way what she's trying to learn. So it, it, it is an unfortunate side effect of that that they're take, she's taking the bad with the good. Yeah, but I, I mean, the the one the one thing that that I find, and we've been kind of talking around this a little bit, is that the the one criticism that I do have, or the one element of this episode that I find a little bit tiresome, is is you know this idea that that all of all of this is very pleasant and all of this is very charming, but but there also is a, a real strain of heteronormativity around all of this. And Here we that, go. <laughs> I know I, I had to bring it up uh, that. You know, you've got this one path, right? Like you're looking for someone to marry and yeah. you can't have a range of human relationships that range in all sorts of different ways. Um, I mean, that's one of the I mean, this is less true than it used to be. But I think that that was always one of the pleasures of of queer relationships is that. Mm. You, you don't have expectations, right? Like, you know, there, there's a range of possibilities and you might meet someone just to hook up and then you end up liking them and you hang out with them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and you don't have to get married. You don't have to do this. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to do that. You don't have to do the other thing. Um, you can do whatever you want, whatever feels right to, to both people or, or three people or four people or however many people are involved in this relationship. Um, 
But but there is a weird thing in this episode where it's like, well, why couldn't they just try this? I mean, it's not like it, it, it feels very important in a way that is artificial, I guess, be, partly because it's a television show, but also partly because this, once again, is another example of the narrowing, you know, the narrowing uh, uh, scope of, of Star Trek in terms of like sexual relationships, because like, I don't know. I mean, I think that the Doctor and Seven could be very nice together, but I also think that they could just kind of, like, be fuck buddies. I, I don't well, know. Like I guess, I, like, yeah. there's a lot of... It, it just feels like the show is putting them into a box of, like, this is very important that I feel this way, and we're, we, you know, if we're not going to get married, then... You know what I mean? Like, I, I just... I don't know. There's something well, about I, it that, that is a little weird. I'm almost imagining a version in which... <laughs> and... I know, ex- I, as I will say, we will know exactly why they didn't write this version, but where the Doctor and Seven decide, well, for scientific purposes, Lesson 30, you know, romantic intimacy, and the Doctor coming away from the experience as, oh, wow, she's wonderful, I love her, that was a really deep moment of connection, and her saying, well, scientifically, that was very interesting, and I understand sex a lot more now, wow, thank you for the less, you know, where where she is just taking it as more data and all of that. I, I mean, I guess in a way, the episode is the PG-rated version of that. Yeah, I mean, there there is an element of that as well. I mean, this this is a network television show in the 1990s, yeah. and so you you can only have a certain range of possibilities available to you. But I mean, listen, they they do sing a song which, in musical theater is usually symbolic of intimacy because a duet is a symbol of sex in a way. So there, yeah, there yeah, is yeah, sure. some of that shorthand going on here. Well, I mean, I, th- I think that's a good, that's a good segue to, to talking about the singing in the episode because, you know, you are my sunshine and someone to watch over me are, 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 are sort of yeah. like motifs throughout the episode. And, you know, Star Trek is, is not a, a franchise that has people singing a lot. And, and so I think this episode is particularly striking just for that uh if it was striking for nothing else um you know while i think the overdubbing is a little much uh <laughs> it, it works fine in the context yeah. of the episode but but of course you know people singing i i mean this is a personal thing but i don't like hearing people sing like in real life because i just find it extremely emotional and it bothers me um you know like television and stuff it's fine but someone singing next to me i'm just like please don't do that uh so so it is a very emotional thing. Yeah. It is very, very pregnant, haha, with with expectation. And the Doctor and Seven, yes, of course, the song they are particularly choosing to sing um, has some resonances. Yes, the fact that they are singing together has some resonances in musical theater, uh, just by dint of the fact that they are singing together in a duet. But it yeah, also, and it's not... Well, it's not coincidental that neither of those are happy songs. I mean, they are both songs about, you know, You Are My Sunshine is a, is a lament that the sunshine has been taken away. It's about somebody who's lost a loved one. And Someone to Watch Over Me is a song about loneliness. And I'm sure you just it, blew some people's minds that have never actually listened to the lyrics of You Are My Sunshine. <laughs> I know, like, it's, it's not like, a... 
how many people I know, like, oh, my mom sang that to me. Like, that's not a great song to sing to your kid. Because it's got, I don't, I don't know musical, I don't know music terms, so maybe you can help me with this. But I don't know, it's just got that, like, it's got that rhythm to it, you know? It's just like, yeah. it's it's peppy. And, and you know, it's like, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. It's like, oh, that's nice. And then people yeah. just, like, stop there. It's like Love Fool by the Cardigans, you know? It's not really a happy, poppy love song. It's about being so desperately in love with somebody who doesn't care about you that you don't even care like just fake it it's all right i'll just give me crumbs give me crumbs and that would have been a perfect song for this episode but i know why they didn't use it because it would have been too expensive yeah no i i'm with you and i i mean i i i don't know how much else there is really to say about the singing in particular but no it's i mean obviously they wanted to show off singing a bit and here's an opportunity where the doctor can ham it up and you know jerry riot has a lovely voice and if i it, 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 it's a cute sweet scene but i also i mean i also think that 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 it's it's nice to see star trek voyager um do something a little different yeah. to to try something different i mean again this is not really something that had been done a lot in star trek before um, I can't really think of many examples of... Like, I mean, Next Gen had performances everywhere, and we've seen Klingon operas being performed. And yeah, like Klingon opera's but, true. Or... But, but I mean, there there is a definite sense that the people on these various starships do appreciate and enjoy the beauty of music and art in general, and this is another iteration of that. To have a duet between two... I mean, the only other time I've seen a duet between two people as a sign of growing affection is the one with uh, Captain Picard and that woman that he has to order to possibly a dangerous situation. They do play music together as part of uh, their courtship. Yeah. So I guess that's the only analogous scene I can see of that. Yeah, that is true. And, I mean, we would be remiss if we did not at least briefly touch on the... B plot of this episode, which is the <laughs> Cotty Ambassador's uh, adventures in eating and drinking everything on board the Starship Voyager, uh, played you, of course by Scott Thompson. But number one, if you like Scott Thompson, please listen to our June patron special on the television show Kids in the Hall, which is available to all patrons who pay five dollars a month or more. So please get on that patreon.com slash trekabout show, um, and you'll hear our thoughts on that. But if you had told me that there could be such a thing as a funny remake of Liaisons, I would have hit you. But this is essentially <laughs> the plot of Liaisons, except it's really fucking funny. And Scott Thompson is three quarters of that. But this is just a – it's a tighter plot. It doesn't – I like the ironies of that. I like the – um I mean, I think it's really interesting to have this episode the week after the Jason Alexander episode. Two cases of the Jason Alexander was they didn't know how to use their guest star. This, they perfectly know how to use their guest star. He, I mean, we, we talked about, for example, how awkward Alexander looked in the makeup. Well, Scott Thompson knows how to wear makeup and elaborate costumes, so – he really was able to embody the character in a way that doesn't look feel or look awkward. He hams it up the exact right amount, and I don't know. I love that. I love that you have this. I mean, the 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 hyper uh, protocol society is something that we've seen a bunch of times, and 
I frankly love that the implication at the end that not only is this permissible, but this was actually kind of expected that there are times even when this, even this hyper, hyper polite, hyper structured society recognizes that there are times in which, uh, you need to relax or completely ignore protocol because that these things are there for, it, it is an episode which does accept that there are sensual and physical pleasures in these wor- this world and that you can have too much of them and that you can get yourself into a little bit of trouble with them, but that the beauty of life is to be found in them. And there is beauty to be found in romance with another person or in having a few drinks and going to a party equally. Yeah, Seven of Nine is learning to enjoy life a little bit more, except she does still have certain areas of either trepidation or naivete or whatever. She 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 isn't quite there yet, but again, it, we we talk about how Seven of Nine is one instance in which I don't think they've really backslid at all. They are very aware of constant. Uh, emotional and psychological progress with her yeah yeah no absolutely and i think that that there's well a couple points i want to make so so number one of course is that you know to bring it back to scott thompson um the one other thing i will say about his performance is that you know he he he's not trying to be funny 95 percent mm. of the time in this episode which i think is is very you know it's a good indication of his skills as an actor and the other thing is that uh I, th- you know, the, the A and B plots of this episode do work pretty nicely together because, you know, and I don't think it's something that the episode is beating you over the head with, which is nice because part of what makes the episode work is how siloed apart these two storylines are. And, and I always like this form of storytelling. This is something that Star Trek The Next Generation was very good at doing. Um, Deep Space Nine went almost the opposite way where very rarely did they have a B story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is nice to see that, um, part of what I think the episode is trying to do with this, you know, storyline of the ambassador is just as the doctor and seven of nine are dealing with trying to figure out how they're expressing their emotions, how they're feeling, you know, whether or not you should swallow your emotions, tamp them down, you know, the Inkati ambassador is coming from a society which very much privileges doing that all the time and it's interesting to see how badly that can go as well where you just sort of like let loose entirely and suddenly you're throwing things at people in the mess hall well i wonder how vulcan that society really is in the sense that for example when we saw tuvok with his teacher a couple weeks ago and he said I firmly believed at the end when he's saying, well, you've purged all emotion and it will never plague you again that the mentor knows it's bullshit and that he, this is where you are now and then you'll rethink this and you'll re-understand this. I mean, the, the, I feel like the elder that we meet has more of a worldly relaxed sense of how to do this discipline in this way and how to live life and how to approach things. And yes, he is saying all of these prayers and he is approaching life in a very ritualized fashion, but I think he is also recognizing 
the beauty and the rhythm of those things when the Scott Thompson one is, oh, I have all these things and I have all this pressure and I have to do this this way and I have to do this this way and oh my god, party! And then, okay, now I have to look like this and I have to do this and, and... this is a lesson into why, how, and when to relax for him that he is going to use to have a more mature attitude towards life, maybe. I guess the thing I liked the most about this episode, though, was Tom Paris's dad jokes, which it turned out were actually stolen from the uh, the, the doctor, so... Oh, yeah. Really, I, I, I can imagine... I'm imagining a very... A very good scene in Sick Bay where 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 the doctor is subjecting Paris to all of this. I love how annoying the doctor can be, and you know, finally, oh, and Bellana breaks his hollow uh, camera in the first episode. That poor guy, he's just—he's not having a good he's time. A really he's dorky not dad. A good time. He tries his damnedest. All right, I think that's it for this episode of Trek About. If you have any thoughts on Juggernaut or someone to watch over me, please leave a comment on the post for this episode at trekaboutshow.com. As Richard so kindly mentioned earlier, patreon.com slash trekaboutshow is where you can go to give us some of your financial support. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truckaboutshow is our username. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for Trek About. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. All right, just two podcasts left in the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. Next week, we will be talking about 1159 and relativity.